Father, as we bow this morning before your holy throne, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many people are obsessed with the idea of finding the perfect gift. And for some of you, it's already begun, and some of you know you need to get going to find that perfect gift for a loved one. I remember back thinking of my own growing up in our family. My parents would take usually two nights. They would pay a babysitter to watch us, and then they would go out and buy the gifts for myself and my three siblings. It was quite a process, very intentional. But I also noticed later in life that they stopped putting quite as much time into the gift giving. In fact, it turned into a, here's a gift card, get what you want type of thing. That's probably because the kids went out and had their own families and the grandkids multiplied. Their own resources decreased somewhat and the confluence of the two changed Christmas entirely as far as finding the perfect gift. I've seen that in my own life as well already. Nancy and I used to spend more time finding gifts for the little ones and now we're into the gift cards uh, to give to the kids. Now, we give a variety of gift cards. We don't give the same one. That wouldn't be appropriate. So, you know, one from this store, one from that store. The perfect gift. But you know what the perfect gift is for Christmas? <laughs> well, you know where you are. You know who's talking. I think you know the answer, right? It's Jesus, of course. James chapter 1 says, Every good and per perfect gift comes from above. From God. And thanks be unto God for his indescribable, unspeakable, incredible gift of his son. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you only understood the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would ask me for drink and you would have living water. So there is a perfect gift and that perfect gift comes from Christ. Gift-giving is a, a real big thing around Christmas. A survey several years ago asked the question, what makes the holiday important to you? The answer, 97% said buying gifts. 33% said Jesus. I think they miss it. For he is indeed the perfect gift. Open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. And we want to talk about this perfect gift. The Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful section of Scripture that connects the birth of Christ and the death of Christ in a manner of a few verses. I want to begin reading with verse 4. So this is Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, or as the NIV renders it, when the time had fully come, God sent forth, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. 
Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. What jumps out at me in that small portion of Scripture is the fact that the verb sent is used twice, and God is the sender. First of all, he sends his son. That's verse 4. And then verse 6, he sends his spirit. And those two gifts are the greatest gifts in the world. And they give a richness and a fullness to Christmas like nothing else can. They are indeed perfect gifts from above. Let's look at each one. First of all, God sent his son, the first gift. He sent his son, Paul says, to secure our redemption. We call this Christmas. This is Advent season or first Advent because second Advent is when Jesus is coming again. So this story of Christmas starts out with God sending his son. Now, the son did not begin as a baby in Bethlehem. You may not know that. That was the beginning of the incarnation. That was the beginning of God becoming man. But Christ has always existed. And I'm convinced had visited planet Earth as the angel of the Lord, previously before he was incarnated as the Son of Man. But Jesus has always lived. We read about that in John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's prologue in John 1 is much like the prologue in Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was made by the Word. And then a little later, he says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So Jesus has always existed. The eternal Son of God in time became the Son of Man. And the scripture Paul gives us here in Galatians 4 says that this God who was sent was also born. So that's how he was sent into the world. He was born as a child. We might think it would have the wiser course of action would have been to make him an adult with authority and power so that he could battle with Rome. But he came as a helpless babe who must be cared for, who developed in the womb and then would grow as a baby and a child and needed the care of loving parents before he ever began any type of saving ministry. That's pretty amazing. When the wise men came looking for the birth of this new king in Israel, they went to Herod and he went to his wise men who said, yes, Bethlehem's the place. The prophets have spoken, Micah in particular. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will a ruler come forth who is going to lead my people Israel. And Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem as a baby. Just remember, that's not when he began. That's when he began in the human race. 
So there is a divine person, Jesus. And without a divine person at Christmas, nothing about Christmas makes sense. There's no reason to celebrate. But the process is pretty surprising. God sent his son born of a woman. And what is so surprising about this is that Christ was born of a virgin. Now, please remember that there's nothing too unusual about the birth of Christ. It's a bit of a misnomer to talk about the virgin birth. We're really talking about the virgin conception. That was supernatural, without the aid of man. But once conceived, Mary developed the child in her womb like any other mother, and his, her birth was anything but supernatural. It was a very natural birth. I wasn't there, I don't know, but I imagine it was not a silent night. I imagine Joseph had a few things thrown at him. Maybe that's how he found the shepherds. He's out wandering around because Mary said, get out of here, which is what a lot of women say to us husbands during that time. That's not biblical, by the way. I don't know what happened. But what is biblical is that the birth of Christ was very natural. The conception was supernatural because Mary was a virgin. So the surprising process that the coming one would begin as a helpless babe and the purpose, well, that's glorious. For it tells us in Galatians 4.4, God sent his son, who was born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, it's very natural for a woman to give birth to a child, and for a Jewish woman, the result would be that that child is responsible to the law, must be uh, one who fo follows the law, adheres to the teachings that have been given to them. They are under the law's blessing if they obey and under the law's curse if they disobey. That's the way it is. And Jesus had to be born under the law for two reasons. One, to take its curse upon himself that was aimed at us. And secondly, to perfectly follow that law so we could receive his righteousness. The curse part, Paul already talked about, chapter 3 of Galatians. Notice in verse 13, just for a moment. We're told that Christ redeemed us, part of the redeeming process, is Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. You disobey the law, you break it in one point, the judgment of the law is upon you. The consequences of the law you have earned. And the consequence of breaking the law is condemnation. Christ took that curse by becoming a curse for us. How did he do it? Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And so here's the beautiful connection between the manger and the cross. It was the love of God that sent Jesus into the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son and it's the love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus dies on the cross having no sin of his own, but he takes our sin upon him. And once he does that, he's under the law's curse. And he dies the penalty demanded by the law. 
But to redeem us, he has to give us a righteousness that we do not share. A righteousness that we could not earn. And for 33 years, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. Never broke the commands of God in thought, word, or deed. Never. He was perfectly without sin. He knows what it is to be tempted, but he never sinned. So he can help us when we're tempted. He never sinned, so he can give to us his perfect righteousness. It's attributed to our account, reckoned to us. Received not by something we earned, by keeping the law. We could never do it. It's by faith. It's the righteousness that comes by faith, by believing in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, the death of Christ on the cross becomes yours and your sins are forgiven. And the obedience of Christ to the law becomes yours and you're adopted as God's child. You see, he died to redeem you, which means to buy you back to liberate you from the bondage that you are in. You've been kidnapped by sin and controlled by Satan and you need to be set free. And that's what the gospel does. The good news of Christ sets us free. How? Jesus dies for our sin on the cross and gives us his perfect righteousness. And to believe that is to be blessed with the greatest gift in the world. And so the apostle Paul says, this is Christmas and it's about the son. But he mentions specifically in Galatians chapter 4 this comment about chronology or time. When the time had fully come. What does that mean? It means that God has a clock, a divine clock, and he is always on time. Never late. Unfortunately for us, never early. We wish sometimes he would show up earlier than he does, but he's always on time. You'll recall from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark that when he arrived on the scene, he said, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's time for you to repent and believe the gospel. It's time for him to begin his public ministry. John's in prison and Jesus preaches the good news. Throughout his life, especially in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. It's not my time yet. And then when he was betrayed in the garden, the hour has come. It's time. The time, the event that we have been planning is now upon us and the hour has come. Jesus is the pivotal point of all history. He's the, he's the hinge upon which human history turns. How do we reckon our time? B.C. and A.D., which means what? Before Christ and in the year of our Lord. Now, we know that many people are fighting against this, and there's a new way to reckon time. It's called uh, BCE, before the common era, and then CE, the common era. But I think it's, it's comical in itself, because if you ask anyone what that means, and you say, how did they determine when one stops and the other starts? The answer is Jesus but they're doing their best to eliminate Christ. They want to elim eliminate him from the calendar and they want to elimin eliminate him from our holidays because if you get too much Jesus, it can be a little convicting. But God sent his son into the world not as a bad thing to harm us, but as a savior to rescue us. 
It's the love of God. He doesn't come to condemn us. We're already condemned. He comes to save us. And that's the great message of Christmas. But the timing is perfect. There's also an aspect of culture here. The whole idea that Rome controlled the land, and because of that there was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace universally throughout their empire. They developed a network of roads so people could travel fast. The Greek language was the universal language of the time, a trade language spoken everywhere. So there was a cultural cohesion among the empire itself. And there was a sense of religious hunger. People were tired of their godless idols that always let them down. They were looking for truth. And Jewish synagogues were built everywhere because of the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews having gone everywhere. At least the Old Testament was being read and people would come and share Christ, how he fulfills the Old Testament. I tell you, the fullness of time had come culturally. It was the right time. It was the perfect time. It was just in the nick of time. But then there's also something else, and I just want to mention it briefly. It takes further study, but I think it's pretty fascinating, and it comes from the prophecy of Daniel. There's a book written by an English scholar. His name is Sir Robert Anderson, and he looks at this prophecy given to Daniel, which, by the way, uh, Daniel spoke to the angel Gabriel, who is the announcing angel at first advent, both to Mary and to Zechariah. In this book, Robert Anderson comments on Daniel 9, 25 and following. Let me just give you a portion. It's on the screen. Know therefore and understand that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which historically can be pinpointing, pinpointed to the work of Artaxerxes or Cyrus, around uh, 455 B.C. Uh, from that decree until the anointed one comes will be seven years and 62 sevens. Now, earlier in Daniel, there was a literal rendering of these years, and I think it's very appropriate for us to render these as literal years as well, which would mean 69 sevens. Or multiplying that, you come up with 483 years. And after that, the city, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt. The trench will be built. It will be in troublesome times. And after that final 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. And that, I believe, clearly refers to the cross. Now, if we look at that chart, just in some basic uh, mathematical formulas, uh, the seven times the 69, I think I have seven plus there, but it's seven times the 69, you end up with a 483 years. Robert Anderson goes even into the days. He says there's a Jewish lunar calendar and it's only 360 days long. And when you add all that together from the decree, final line is this. He comes up with a date of around 32 AD for Messiah to be cut off. And he even gives you the actual day, April 6th. I wouldn't go quite that far. But it is amazing to me that Jesus is crucified somewhere around 30 AD. It depends on where you start his birth, and that might have been 4 BC, which is a whole other discussion. And now that you're thoroughly confused, let me give you a brief summary. This prophecy looks clearly like divine chronology, that God is revealing what he plans to do 
And he actually did, now that we can look back at it and see that the cutting off of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah, fits in perfectly with this prophecy of Daniel. Whether we can take this to an nth degree, it matters not. At the, at the perfect time, Jesus shows up. And that's what we know. And he has sent his son to redeem us. That's the purpose. So that we might be rescued by the grace of God. The son comes to buy us back. But he doesn't stop there. I think the Christmas message needs to go on. Verse 6. This is Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So now you have God sending his spirit to confirm our adoption. First of all, it's the son sent to redeem us and rescue us. Now it's the spirit sent to confirm what God has done. And we call this Pentecost. It's interesting, too, that you've got the use of the Trinity in this section of Scripture because the Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts. His Son sends the Spirit, His Spirit, into our hearts because we are God's sons. Now, if you've been attending South for uh, the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been talking about the Trinity quite a bit, and you might be saying, I. You know, here you go again, talking about the Trinity. You know, don't talk about the Trinity so much. Well, I think it's good for us to be reminded that it's found everywhere in Scripture. And whenever anyone challenges you, go to one of these portions of Scripture in Ephesians or in Galatians and say, here it is. It's found over and over again. And here we see the Father planning and the Son executing the plan and the Spirit applying that plan to our heart. What did the Spirit do at Pentecost? He gave birth to the church. And from that point afterward, every believer in Jesus was indwelt with the Spirit. Prior to that, the Spirit came upon people and departed. Now in this New Testament age, this church age, in the last days when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit indwells them. And if you don't have the Spirit living within you, you don't belong to God. Romans tells us. So every child of God does have the Spirit, and it's a wonderful gift from God. And what does the Spirit do? It declares that we are God's children, that we belong to His family, that we are heirs together with Christ. Notice how many times it's repeated. Verse 5, we receive the full rights of sons. Verse 6, because you are His son. Verse 7, you're no longer slave, a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, repeated over and over again for emphasis. Repeated over and over again so we don't forget it. One of the reasons that you can sing many of the Christmas carols by heart is because you would sing them over and over and over again. Here's a song you need to sing. I'm a child of God. No longer a slave, but a son. And all the blessings that come with that. In the Roman culture, an individual might have many wives and slaves to produce children. And sometimes those slaves or other sons were so thought of that they wanted to adopt them officially as one of their own. 
They would take them to the forum. There would be a ceremony they would go through. A certificate would be given, a special toga received, and everyone would know that child was an heir, but they were under tutors until the age when they could actually receive the inheritance. This is exactly what Paul is describing. And because we are his children, used to be a slave, bound to sin, controlled by Satan, we've been redeemed. And because we've been freed and placed into God's family, we're not slaves but sons. Let's begin to live like it. Spurgeon once said, don't quote Moses for Christian motives of obedience. Don't say the Lord will cast me away unless I do this or that. Such talk is of the bondwoman and her son. But you are the son of the free woman, a true-born heir of heaven, which is the very discussion that Paul continues in Galatians. It's true that there is a standard for holiness, no doubt about it. But there needs to be a change not only of our position, but of our disposition. And that's where many Christians fall short. You still live like you've got to hammer out this thing called salvation all on your own. You've got to merit your own righteousness. You've got to appease God and please God. You've got to earn your status before God, and it cannot be done. In fact, Christ has done it already. Took the curse, lived the life, and he gives it to you when you become his child. All is freely yours, so make free of it. Spurgeon goes on to say, your adoption brings large gifts. Don't be afraid to use them. So the fullness of Christmas is found in Christ. It's not in the gift giving, which is fine. It's not in the decorations, which I love, or the songs that are so beautiful. It's in Christ. That's the perfect gift. Do you want a full Christmas? John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we have received one blessing after another. That makes for a full Christmas, the fullness of grace. Or Colossians chapter 1 that says, Christ in Christ is the fullness of the deity, of the Godhead. God lives in his fullness in Christ fully, and you have been given the fullness of Christ. You want a full Christmas? Fullness of grace. One blessing after another. The fullness of the Godhead, the triune God in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you have all that fullness. And then thirdly, there is the wonderful history we can point back to and celebrate. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. The fullness of time is history. The fullness of the Godhead is deity. The fullness of grace is mercy. And that's what makes a full Christmas. Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not thinking of someone specifically, but I have no doubt that here this morning, people have come to this place of worship who are not Christians. Maybe you know it. Your friends know it. And you're here today, and I'm so glad you're here we welcome you with open arms. Maybe you come all the time and you're still not a Christian. We are so glad you are here. But I invite you to make Christmas, this Christmas, memorable by giving your heart and soul to Jesus. 
Some of you come and you think you are Christians, but you're not. You've been telling yourself the lie so long you believe it. You fooled others. You know the lingo. You know the traditions. You know how to dress and how to act, how to get in the building and out of the building and even get through a worship service without great embarrassment because we don't try to embarrass you. But you're not a Christian. Christmas has got to be empty to you. If the Spirit of God is not crying out in your heart, you belong to Him. In fact, the Spirit is probably crying in your heart, you don't know Christ. Wake up. And it would be a great mercy if God would tell you that, even this morning. Oh, that you would turn from your sin and trust the Savior, God's gift to you of his amazing love. And then for those of us who are believers, how exciting this portion of Scripture is. We are heirs of God. We are sons because of the Son who gave us his Spirit, who fills our heart with a new disposition. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of the King with Jesus, my Savior. I'm a child of the King. Let me take you back to my family and our Thanksgiving or Christmas times of feasting. As I recall, as a young boy, we usually got together with the Allen family, and that's my mother's maiden name. And by the way, recently, uh, several years ago, I got really excited because a well-known actor by the name of Tim Allen grew up in the same area where my mom did, and I thought, this is exciting. Maybe I'm related to Tim Allen. And so I began to do a little bit of study on it. Uh, Tim went to Country Day High School. He's a few years older than I am, not much. Uh, and uh, we might have crossed paths at school and some of the activities or something. I thought, this, and maybe we're even related. And then I found out Tim Allen is his TV name. His real name is something other. But the Allen family was still great. And I can remember enjoying those feasting times with my aunts and uncles and cousins. And I was part of the family. And I chowed down. I'm sure I was rude as a kid. I don't remember even saying, Grace, just go for the food because I'm part of this family. But later on, when I grew a little bit, I understood that if I was a guest in someone's home, I shouldn't have that same demeanor. And yet you shouldn't eat quite as much because, you know, you have to show a little reserve, a little moderation, and you have to fit in, and you're a guest, and you can't take the food first or take the best of the food first. And I'm a guest. Well, my friend, if you are a child of God, I'm not saying you should be rude, but I'm saying dig in. He wants you to dig in. He wants you to enjoy the blessings of his grace in large measure. And that's what Christmas is. It's so exciting to look at his fullness and his deity, his grace and his mercy. But if you're not a child, trust Christ. Even right now where you sit, call out to God and say, Lord Jesus, save me. And if you do, you'll become a child of God. And all of this will be true of you. And that will indeed be a merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for sending your son, the eternal God-man, the eternal son of God who became man, the fullness of God in human form 
to take the curse upon us so that we might live forever. To give us a position of adopted sons so that we would have a new mindset, a new attitude. Freedom, not bondage. Fullness, not poverty. Salvation, and not condemnation. All because of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.